This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Disease. Uh, this is lecture number nine. Uh, this is on reconstructing phylogenetic relationships. Uh, this is a really important lecture to understand. This is uh, building phylogenies and being able to read phylogenies and being able to do analyses on the data presented in phylogenies is critical to understanding how SARS-CoV-2 has spread around the world. Uh, it is the primary source of information that we use to track how uh, viruses and other pathogens have evolved um, and to reconstruct you know, what evolutionary processes occurred as they're evolving, when did they evolve in a certain spot, when did they emerge, when did they jump into a new host species, all of these, um, uh, when, did they, when did they shift from uh, China to North America, all of these questions are, um, uh, are related to properly reconstructing uh, a phylogeny, building a phylogeny, and then um, doing additional analyses. So this lecture here is the route to understanding how we build phylogenetic relationships, and then uh, additional lectures in the future will be how we then use those phylogenies to learn about the evolution of pathogens. So in this lecture, we will, it, it's mostly a, a conceptual lecture and going over phylogenetic reconstruction. So it, it, it at times deviates from the strict subject of evolution of infectious diseases, uh, but this is really critical to understanding so we can then look at phylogenies of SARS, look at phylogenies of HIV, look at phylogenies of influenza uh, and learn something from them. Okay, this is BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Diseases, lecture number nine, phylogenetic reconstructions. So I have a picture on this title screen, um, and this is actually a picture of one of the first, if not the first phylogeny ever drawn. Uh, it was jotted down by Darwin in a notebook, um, and he was just thinking about how populations evolve and how they then diverge into different species um, and what this kind of looks like. And he was drawing sort of these lines connecting things and these branching points here. And this is what we know today as a phylogeny. Phylogenies are reconstructions of evolutionary relationships. And so what, what this phylogeny is showing is that he's imagining a population and then it, it diverges into different species and branches off. And then he has maybe different a species B, a species C, and a species D. And within these clusters, he's showing that, you know, they're diverging within the species and you get this, um, this pattern, uh, but this cluster is separate from this cluster of C and this cluster of B is separate than this cluster of D. And so you're, you're, you're developing this, this, what looks like a tree, an evolutionary tree or, or a phylogeny. So this was just Darwin. Uh, Darwin came up with evolution of natural selection. He really didn't, um, you know, come up with the the techno techniques that we're um, uh, going to learn about today. But but obviously he was thinking along these lines that we could construct these um, these diagrams that showed us evolutionary relationships, uh, how things were related to each other, and how things evolved from from one state to another state. Okay. 
Before we get to that, let's uh, go into taking the temperature on COVID-19. I have uh, bad news. So I gave that lecture on Thursday, and the most promising drug that I talked about in the lecture, lecture was remdesivir. And uh, then, and the reason why we thought it was promising was based on that data that, that, I, that I talked about, where there were studies with, um, on some kind of primate, um, and uh, there was also some interesting uh, studies done on compassionate care with patients. And then we had that leaked news article from STAT, or the, the article was, was purposeful, but the data that they talked about was leaked from this Gilead study that, that is underway. And it was just a portion of that study. And it seemed very promising. And, but, you know, it was leaked. It wasn't, you know, vetted yet. It wasn't verified yet. Uh, and then just later in that very same day that I gave the lecture, uh, this article came out also on STAT. And it actually begins to call into question whether or not remdesivir uh, is going to be an effective therapeutic. So we are all so eager to find a cure for this, uh, to find some kind of therapy that will help us fight COVID-19. Uh, but, and so, and I'm also eager. And so I, you know, I, I showed you all of the, the most current data and the current understanding of maybe this is a promising therapeutic. Um, but it seems that with additional information, it might not be. Now we're sort of going back and forth and let's just wait um, until we really have the full study from Gilead uh, before we, we draw any conclusions about remdesivir. So that's bad news. Um, but good news is that it appears that, and this was released yesterday, that um, one of the groups that is making a vaccine, uh, this one is based in, at Oxford, uh, actually has a huge head start on the process of making a vaccine and is about to start an, a massive clinical trial um, that is the type of clinical trial we'll, we'll need to do in order to actually find out whether or not the vaccine provides immunity um, and you know, whether or not it, the vaccine is safe for a broad spectrum of people. And so this is very promising. So this is uh, just one of the many articles about this news uh, was in the New York Times. Uh, the reason why this group had uh, has an advantage is because they've been working on creating a vaccine for MERS, a related virus, um, and they had already shown that the vaccine that they're making for MERS uh, did not harm humans, and so that's obviously a good step forward. Um, and then they they're they're about to perform a clinical trial. So this here with the vaccine with six thousand people, um, so that will happen in the next month. And so that's an enormous um, uh, group of people, and that's very promising. Uh, right now, we had talked about before that there's clinical trials for other vaccines, uh, and those are underway as well, but they are much uh, smaller clinical trials. Um, and basically, the goal of those trials is mostly to show that the vaccines do not have a bad effect on humans. But the sample sizes are probably not large enough that they could actually detect whether or not uh, the vaccine provides immunity to humans. So just think about it. You know, maybe just a few percentage of the population uh, have actually been exposed to COVID-19. And so if you just have a handful of people testing this out and you have a handful of people that are the control and a handful of people that actually had the vaccine, 
um, there might the control people might not have actually during the course of their life been exposed to COVID-19. And so you might have no infections in the control and then no infections in the, in the vaccine treatment is meaningless because it's no different than the control. It may in fact uh, provide immunity, but uh, you need to see a difference between those two. But if you have 3000 people in the control and 3000 people uh, in the actually receiving the vaccine, then you're likely to see some of those control people actually coming down with COVID-19. And then you can see whether or not there's no one in the treatment with uh, the vaccine that come down with COVID-19. And then that's meaningful. Okay, so it's, it's uh, kind of paradoxical because, um, because we've stopped the spread of COVID-19, it's not spreading nearly as rapidly as it, as it was, we're actually making it more difficult for us to be able to detect these differences between the control treatment and the vaccine treatment. That itself is interfering with our ability to develop a vaccine. But of course, we, we have to continue social distancing. It's just kind of this interesting dilemma uh, that if you had higher rates of the spread, it would be easier to de detect these treatment differences. Okay, so this vaccine coming out of Oxford uh, has been tested on rhesus, macaque, rhesus macaques. Uh, the study is small, just six monkeys, uh, but they gave them a, a huge dose of SARS-CoV-2, so not MERS, but actually SARS-CoV-2, uh, and they developed immunity to SARS-CoV-2. They didn't get sick. They all survived the study, um, so that's good news. And uh, the way that this group is working, they say that if everything goes smoothly, they'll actually have uh, millions of doses of this vaccine ready for people to use uh, as early as September. Um, so this is, this is really, really very promising. Okay, so remdesivir may not work, but hopefully we have a vaccine that does work. Okay, so let's actually get into the, the course material. So I've shown you this phylogeny before. It's from nextstrain.org. And um, I now want to go over how, you know, what is the logic that, what's, uh, what's the data and what's the logic that the, the biologists used to construct this phylogeny? First thing is, what is the data that, that they use to actually create this phylogeny to establish these evolutionary relationships? Um, and the data for this one are whole genome sequences of the RNA of um, SARS-CoV-2. And so what they've done is that each one of these points represents an individual isolate of the virus that they sequence the full genome. Um, and then so then they have the full you know, RNA sequence of that. Um, and then they've done this for, I think, about 10,000 uh, different, different viruses. And so then what they're doing to establish these evolutionary relationships is they're lining up that full genome. So this is for one isolate. And then this is for another isolate down here. Um, and they align those, those genomes. And then they look across the genome and they say, are there any differences from this genome to this genome? And how many differences are there? Um, and so then they say, okay, this genome has many different mutations than this genome here. Therefore, they lie on separate regions of the tree. Um, and then they'll go and say, okay, how many, how many mutations does this genome have compared to that genome? Um, and then they can say, okay, actually, these ones are 
are pretty similar to each other. And so they're, they're related to each other. They're going to be in a similar spot on that phylogenetic tree. So the information that's being plugged in is all of these DNA, DNA sequences. And really the way that they, they uh, create the phylogenetic structure is to isolate where in the genome are their mutations. Um, and then they begin to establish evolutionary relationships by grouping isolates of the virus that have similar types of mutations or similar numbers of mutations. And so we'll, we'll go over that. That's an algorithm that they, they use to, to establish which ones are most closely related to each other. And so we'll, we'll talk about what, what goes into that algorithm throughout the, throughout the lecture. So one thing to note is that while, you know, in this, these modern times, we build phylogenies based on whole um, genomes, especially for viruses, um, most phylogenies in the literature and even a lot of the phylogenies that are created today are based on just single genes, not whole genomes, but just focusing in on a single gene in the genome and establishing the evolutionary relationship. So often, you know, even bacteria have um, really large genomes, you know, on the order of 5 million bases. They can be even larger, a little bit smaller, but around that, around that order. Um, and so often what people do is not sequence the whole genome of the bacteria and construct a phylogeny, but focus in on a key gene. So for bacteria, that is called 16S. And so they just sequence this small bit of DNA um, and then, but they can use that to see which strains are more closely related to each other than other strains. So, you know, while we'll often talk about whole genomes, a lot of this lecture will be just looking in at, at a small piece of DNA and, and constructing evolutionary relationships that way. So before we get into talking about the algorithms that produce, that we use to produce phylogenies, um, I just wanted to go into, you know, picturing what is a phylogeny and how does a phylogeny relate to the population genetic dynamics and processes that we've talked about so far. So we've talked about mutation and drift and natural selection. Um, and so how do those forces create this uh, evolutionary pattern, which is uh, represented in a phylogeny? And so what this is, you know, this is just a cartoon of dynamics uh, or similar dynamics to what we've gone over in class. You know, you can see that there's sort of these drifting up and down, but that this, this mutation is headed in this direction. And so it might be selectively beneficial, or maybe this is just drift um, driving the mutation to fixation in the population. And so what a phylogeny is, is these branches are showing you evolutionary distance. And what's captured in these branches are, throughout the, the lecture, I'll, I'll denote them as these, these tick marks in the phylogeny. But a tick mark means when a mutation has fixed in a population, and now that population at this point started out uh, with a G, but at this, at this one location in this genome, and now, uh, at this tick point, that population now, all of the individuals have this A. And so this process of, you know, a mutation occurring and then it going through the spreading through the population and fixing, that whole process, you know, which is so elaborate, is encoded by this single little tick mark. 
It just says, oh, okay, now there's one mutation, and now th this population is different than that ancestral population by this one mutation. And so when you look at a phylogeny, you know, you'll see hundreds or thousands of mutations spread throughout that phylogeny. That means that underneath all of that evolutionary pattern are all of these really intricate dynamics of mutation, drift, and selection, all combining together to create that evolutionary pattern. So just think about that when you're, think about the early lectures and these lectures and how those processes yield these patterns. So in phylogenies, we, we show you these, these branching patterns here. And so I just wanna sort of walk through what is underlying that sort of splitting and that, that branching pattern. And so here is just a, a nice diagram um, that I got from the internet that describes how you might have a population um, before, the, before the split where you would have a single site in the genome that has, one may have a blue, maybe that's a T, and one and other individuals may have an A for, for red. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Um, the, the, the blue is a C in this, in this um, you know, made up scenario and uh, the orangish red is an A. Um, and so you have, this, you have this mixture of different uh, nucleotides at those sites, so a mixture of mutations, and then as the population begins to split, you will see um, maybe uh, mutation A is beneficial um, for species B because it's in a different environment than species A, and the mutation for C is beneficial in this environment, and so, there's divergent selection that drives them to uh, fix A in species B and C in species A. Or, you know, these things could just, the reason why the, a different mutation fixed in this species than in this species is just that, um, you know, maybe neutral genetic drift was happening and for random reasons, C got picked here and A got picked over here. So... Okay, but so what, what I'm showing you here is that there is these branching events and then there's distinct mutations that are fixing in these different populations. And that is contributing to the genetic differences between these different species and contributing to their evolutionary divergence. So these differential uh, fixations on these different branches, that's what really creates the pattern of the phylogeny. Okay, so now what I want to do is just walk through a scenario where we have DNA sequences. These could be RNA sequences if we're looking at SARS-CoV-2, but I'll focus on DNA this, for this um, lecture. And so basically we've, we've sequenced a very small bit of the genome, uh, just a fraction of a gene from species A, species B, and species C. And so the first thing that we want to do is we just want to establish that they are related to each other, right? So right now, um, this is kind of this preliminary early structure that just says, hey, we have these three different species. They're all related to each other. Um, and these lines are, are denoting how they're related to each other. So at first, you know, these sequences just look very similar to each other. But then when we sort of use our, when we use our algorithms, uh, we can then pick out a genetic differences between these species. 
And so what we see is that there's a single nucleotide polymorphism at this site in the gene. Um, and so this is often called a SNP, SNP. And so now what we can do is we can place that SNP onto the phylogeny and it's gonna to begin to distort the shape of the phylogeny and start to establish evolutionary relationships between A, B, and C. And so what we would say is that there should be a mutation that occurs on this branch leading out to C. And so what that's going to do is that's going to draw out this branch because often branch length uh, indicates evolutionary distance or genetic distance between species. And so we put this individual tick mark there and that tells us that C is distinct from A and B. But we had, a, we had an option there. We didn't necessarily have to put that mutation on that branch. Um, instead, we could have said, well, you know, maybe two mutations occurred in this phylogeny and that one occurred on this branch an A to a T, and one occurred on this branch, an A to a T as well. And so why did I start with the first scenario? And why does that first scenario make so much more sense than this, this other scenario where we have two mutations? And that is based on this concept of parsimony. The simplest explanation um, is the most likely explanation. This is based on Occam's razor, among competing hypotheses, the one with the fewest assumptions should be selected. Uh, hopefully you've learned about Occam's razor before. And so what I wanna say is that we use parsimony in order to make a prediction for what is the likely phylogenetic relationship between organisms, what is the, their likely evolutionary history. However, what you have to realize is that phylogenies are simply hypotheses. They're not set in stone. Um, there are hypotheses that says, you know, given the information, given the small sequence of DNA that we've sequenced, we have established that the most likely evolutionary relationship um, is that C uh, is on its own and that A and B should cluster together and be more related. But often, as you get more information, as technology improves and you're able to sequence larger and larger stretches of DNA and computing power improves and you're able to compare more DNA sequences with each other, um, then you have to update your hypothesis because often the, the one with more information changes what the overall evolutionary uh, pattern looks like. So I think you know one of the best examples of how we're constantly updating the way our, our hypothesis for evolutionary relationships is in the most important evolutionary relationship out there, the structure of the tree of life itself. So this is something that's still under debate. Uh, for a long time, we pictured the tree like this, where we had three separate domains of life. We had the archaea bacteria, we had the, ba the bacteria, eubacteria, um, and then we had eukaryotes, and that they were all on these three separate branches of life, that they had some common ancestor a long time ago that's here, uh, and then that ancestor led to lineages that gave rise to bacteria, gave rise to different lineages of archaea bacteria, and then gave rise to uh, eukaryotes. And so this is an overall pattern that is summarized here. However, nowadays, we're, and this is from Carl Woese, um, in the 1990s, 
uh, nowadays we um, can sequence many, many more bacterial genomes uh, than we could before. And now we have whole genomes of, of eukaryotes and we have uh, tons of whole genomes of archaea. Um, but also uh, most of these, these, uh, these evolutionary relationships are not based on whole genomes, but just lots and lots of sequencing of key genes in all of these genomes. And so what now when we build a phylogeny using basically the same principles, um, but just a lot more information, uh, we see a very different pattern where there's just an enormous variety of bacteria and they're kind of at the base of this phylog phylogenetic tree or these evolutionary relationships. Um, and then you have this long branch that comes off that leads to archaea bacteria. But if you continue down the exact same branch, um, so it's not a separate branch like here where there's these two separate things. If you continue down the exact same branch, then you get the eukaryotes. That's, you know, that's all of plants and animals and so forth. Um, and so really the, the structure, the overall structure of the tree of life is under debate. And this is the one that the most recent phylogeny yields, where you have just this long branch that separates uh, eubacteria and archaeobacteria, uh, and that actually eukaryotes are kind of an offshoot of this archaea group. Okay, so here's the first question. It's a pretty, pretty straightforward one. And of course, the one, so the, the key bit of information is that this is based on less than 100 taxa, where this is based on greater than 1,000 taxa. And so because so much more data has gone into the, creating the modern um, tree of life, this is the one, this is the, this is the one that most people believe in and, and that we have the most support for. However, you know, just like we had to revise our hypothesis from A to B here, it might be in the future that we discover um, new varieties of bacteria and new varieties of archaea bacteria, and then um, this tree of life uh, structure has to has to be revised again. But I would have to say that I bet that th this this general structure remains pretty stable uh, into the future. There's a lot of information underlying this tree. I should say that this is from uh, Jill Banfield's group. Okay, so I just want to go back um, to this uh, building a phylogenetic tree and going back to this simple example where we have three species, three bits of DNA, um, and we have so far just one mutation that uh, clusters A and B together and separates them from C. So the next thing that I want to do is called adding an outgroup. And so right now you might notice that it's hard to, there's no real direction to this, this, um, th these relationships. We're just saying that there's C, it has a unique mutation from A and B, but is C ancestral to A and B, or did T evolve into an A leading out to C, or did A evolve into a T leading in this direction? And so there's basically no polarity in this phylogeny, there's no direction. So adding an outgroup, allows us to give direction to the phylogeny. So basically what you do for an outgroup is you establish that you know, not based on the information that you're building the phylogeny with, but you know from some outside information that species C is certainly distinct from species A and species B. And so that species C must be sort of separated 
away from A and B and that it's sort of at the, it's what we call at the base of the phylogeny. So we set it at the base of the phylogeny and then we build everything out from here, establishing what these evolutionary relationships are with respect to each other and with respect to this outgroup here. And so it just gives us directionality. Some more terminology, and there's a lot of jargon in this, this lecture, so make sure you learn it. We have the ancestor to the derived. So now in this phylogeny, there was no sort of direction from ancestor to derived, but now that's what we have in this, that these are ancestral states and these are derived states out here. And so in this example, we have an A changing to a T. So this is the ancestral state. Um, and this is the drive state is the, is the T. So that's a mutation that happened. And so now all of these sequences have the T and all of the sequences that happened earlier in the phylogeny have the A. So C has the A and B and A have the T, the, the derived form. So that's how we begin to read these phylogenies, place these mutations, um, and, uh, and interpret what they, what they mean relative to these modern sequences. Okay, so you might be wondering like sort of what, you know, this outgroup thing, uh, it is a little bit confusing. Um, and I would have to say for this course, you know, I will never give you a set of information, say what species is the outgroup, but I don't want to also ignore the fact that we have to pick an outgroup in, in order to build these phylogenies. So what I want to tell you about um, outgroups is that you have to be very careful in picking an outgroup. You have to have some kind of information that tells you this species is distinct from all of the rest of the species in the phylogeny. So you could imagine that um, you are looking at uh, different uh, types of hominids. And you knew that certainly chimpanzees are the outgroup to all of these different types of hominids. And so you use that as your reference point, and then you can build your phylogeny with all of these uh, hominids that are more closely related to each other. That's what you know, the experts in these fields, when they're looking at uh, clusters of organisms, you know, hopefully they know something about uh, the taxonomy of their organisms, so they pick an outgroup that's appropriate. And so this outgroup has to be distinct, but it can't be too different. You wouldn't want to build a phylogeny based on humans and ha have your outgroup be bacteria. That there are just so many evolutionary changes that happen between bacteria and humans that your information is going to be blurred um, and you're not going to be able to really establish any, any true relationships. So when you're picking your outgroup, you want something that's distinct, but not so distinct that it's going to model your information that you're using. Okay, this will become a little bit clearer throughout. And honestly, um, I just want you to understand that when you're building phylogenies, you pick an outgroup, and that's based on expert information, and you won't have to be picking that outgroup um, for, for, for the exercises that we go through. Other um, terminology that I want you to understand is this concept in term common ancestor. And so what these nodes are, are common ancestors. So this is a common ancestor for, this node here is a common ancestor for C, B, and A. This node here is a common ancestor for B and A. For this uh, phylogeny, 
we have predicted that the common ancestor uh, has uh, this A mutation at this part of its, of its genome. Uh, what is important to note is that we haven't sequenced the common ancestor. The common ancestor existed in the past, and so we don't have the DNA or the RNA from that common ancestor. And so this is just a hypothesis that um, the ancestor to all of these species had an A at this position in this gene. Um, and so that creates this node. Um, and then once we establish that prediction, then we can put on um, these mutations on the phylogeny. In this case, this is a mutation that changes this A to a T. So this common ancestor here that gives rise to BNA will have a T at this location. You can see that here, the T. So one simplification that we're gonna do for this class, and that you know, people do do when they're building phylogenies, although it's not always an assumption that people make, is that when you have a polymorphism, so this, this red site is a polymorphic site, when you have a polymorphism, the sequence of the outgroup is what you set as the ancestor. And so then this sequence is the ancestor at this node, and then all the evolution is happening out here on the tree. And so in this case, you know, that's, that's obviously the A here, and that's why we have the A to a T change here. Rather than putting a T here and then having a T to an A change out here. Um, so yeah, so this is a huge assumption. There are other ways to do it, um, but it just simplifies things for this course. So if you are building phylogenies later in life um, and you, you know, are doing research that requires this, uh, make sure you understand how you're establishing the, the ancestral state and what assumptions might be, might be embedded within that. Okay, so my question here is that this is the tree of life. Why doesn't it have an outgroup? This is, you know, there's no direction to this. This is just, you know, these evolutionary relationships between bacteria, eukaryotes, and archaeobacteria. Why is there no outgroup to the tree of life? Well, the answer is kind of kind of fun, you know. This is this is all of life on Earth. Uh, we don't have an outgroup to life on Earth. Uh, we would have to find, you know, maybe you know maybe life on Mars if they were somehow uh, related to each other. That uh, maybe life on Earth spread to Mars or life on Mars spread to Earth or something like that. Then maybe we could establish an outgroup to life on Earth. Uh, but at the moment, you know, obviously we don't have that, um, and so you know, the, the tree of life, um, you know, doesn't have, doesn't have an outgroup. It doesn't have that, that same polarity in that direction. Okay. I just want to walk through some other details on how to read these phylogenies. So often uh, people picture phylogenies and they think that there's, that there's sort of, that the order in which the taxa, so C is a taxa, species C, uh, B and A, these are all different taxa. They, they would think that, well, because C is grouped next, is ordered next to B, and then B is ordered next to A, that C and B are most similar to each other um, compared to C and A. Uh, but actually, the, 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 the 
the information embedded in this phylogeny suggests that A and B are equally distinct from C. So when you have a node, you can actually flip this, the order of all of the descending taxa around, and it actually provides the exact same information. So the way that you can see this also in the phylogeny is that there's a common ancestor that A and B share with C. And so because that common ancestor occurs at the exact same place and the exact same time um, for the difference between C and B and C and A, then that tells you that all of these organisms here have evolved for the same length of time separating them from C. And so even though the ordering appears to suggest C and B are more similar to each other than C and A, they're not. The information, you can, you can just sort of spin these things around on the phylogeny. I think that this, this often occurs because we'll often put something like, you know, a chimpanzee here, a Neanderthal here, and a human here, and that suggests to us that sort of there is this progression towards us. But actually, that's not how evolution works. Humans are just as similar to chimpanzees as Neanderthals are to chimpanzees. Okay, and so um, not just looking at these start car uh, cartoon um, stick diagrams of phylogenies, uh, we can also look at the, the tree of life, and I've just basically flipped around uh, these groups here, but these, you know, these arrangements uh, give you the exact same information. It's all about you know, how, these, how these nodes are separated to each other in this sort of overall branching structure not the, the specific ordering and alignment of these uh, species. Okay, so when I look at a phylogeny, I picture that it's kind of an upside down mobile where these mobiles can sort of freely spin around uh, on these axes. And so these are equivalent to these nodes where all of the, out, the, all of the taxa stemming out from that, that node can, can be sort of flipped around uh, on, that, uh, on that node. Okay, so I just wanna go over a couple more bits of jargon that are important for, for reading phylogenies. And so I'm not just teaching the, you this so that I can give you exam questions. These are important concepts. So one bit of jargon is called, it's called monophyletic groups. And so in a phylogeny, there's lots of different monophyletic groups. And what they are, are groups where all of the individuals in the group share a common ancestor. And so for this phylogeny, this is, so there's a group that is A and B, that's a monophyletic group. Another monophyletic group is ABC. Another monophyletic group is ABCD, obviously. And then ABCD and including also the L group here. So when you have all of these all of these taxa together, they all share the same uh, common ancestor, and so that seems you know very obvious. Um, so what's not a monophyletic group? Well, say I said I grouped uh, taxa C with taxa A. Well, then if I did that, here's their common ancestor, but that group didn't include B. And so that would mean that that's not actually a monophyletic group because we don't have all of the descendants from this, from this common ancestor 
uh, included in the group. And so when we're analyzing phylogenies, we often have to look at these monophyletic groups uh, to help us understand how ev evolution progresses. And so that'll become clear a little bit later in the lecture. So if something's not a monophyletic group, it's called a paraphyletic group. And so here are examples of paraphyletic groups. So like I said, A and C are an example because it doesn't include B. A, B, and D would be an example because it doesn't include C. A, C, and D would be an example because it doesn't include B. Um, and so you can look at, so for, for monophyletic groups, I always think of these as being like Russian nesting dolls, where you have a small group, all of it encapsulated into a larger group, all of it encapsulated into an even larger group. And for paraphyletic, the way that I picture that is it's kind of missing a tooth. You've created a, a, a group of taxa, but you've left out one of them. And that left out one is like a missing tooth in the phylogeny. Okay, so you might wonder like, well, why don't we just classify everything as in there in terms of monophyletic groups? Why do we, why do we have, even have this concept of uh, paraphyletic groups? Well, it turns out that we've actually created these taxonomic um, groupings of organisms that aren't monophyletic groups. And so of these four listed here, one of them is not a monophyletic group. Think about you know, what you know about the diversity of life and try to think, figure out which of these is non-monophyletic. Okay, so fish are non-monophyletic. Um, and so this is a, um, a tree of vertebrates. What we see is that you know, these lamprey, we kind of consider them to be fish and we have Collagenous fish, so those are those are um, uh, sharks. Uh, then we have ray fin fish here. Uh, then we have coelacanths and lungfish, um, which are these really unique fish. Um, and then from out here in the in the phylogeny, we have amphibians and we have uh, tons of different tetrapods. And so tetrapods are just four legged. Uh, land animals. So we're tetrapods too, even though we have two legs, but we have four limbs. Um, that's what tetrapod means, four limbs. And so if we, if we think about, if we were to say, okay, fish are monophyletic groups, then we would be fish because we're, you know, we would share a common ancestor. Um, so all of these fish here, they share a common ancestor. So if we drew the line as fish is everything down here on the phylogeny, then the common ancestor for all of these organisms is here. Well, if we look, if we look out in the phylogeny, well, we share the exact same common ancestor um, with lampreys as um, lungfish do or as rayfinfish do. And so what's the really bizarre thing once you, once you establish these evolutionary relationships in this phylogeny is that we are actually more closely related to lungfish and coelacanths than rayfin fish are to coelacanths and lungfish. So we are, more si we are more similar to these guys here than these rayfin fish. So this is a bluegill, you can think this is like your goldfish um, are related to these guys. So they look the same, but actually we share more DNA in common with these guys than these fish do with these other types of fish. So the way that you can see that in the phylogeny is that 
the common ancestor for all of tetrapods and coelacanthin lungfish are here in the phylogeny. And so this is a more derived position in the phylogeny, whereas the common ancestor for lungfish and coelacanths with rayfin fish occurs here in the phylogeny. So it's deeper in the phylogeny. That means that there's been more evolutionary time that has happened along this branch and along these branches to separate them from each other than there has been for these branches and the rest of these branches. So the way that you establish what things are, are most related to each other is how far in the past or how deep in the phylogeny uh, did they share a common ancestor. And so for lungfish and tetrapods, so that's us, it's more recent than the common ancestor for lungfish and coelacanths for, compared to the rayfin fish. So that's always bizarre. So if fish are a monophyletic group, then we're fish, and we are more closely related to some fish than other fish are to those fish. So I hope that wasn't too confusing, but definitely take a look at this phylogeny. And I, I remember when I learned about this in undergrad, kind of blew my mind. Okay, now let's get away from fish uh, and actually back to microbes. And so the, these ideas of monophyletic groups and paraphyletic groups are also relevant to understanding the evolution of microbes and sort of where our taxonomy has gone wrong. Um, so this is a phylogeny that is establishing evolutionary relationships between different strains of E. coli and this different bacteria called Shigella. And so Shigella has been classified, and this is before they had DNA sequencing, that they classified Shigella as a, not just a unique species, but a unique genus as well. And so when we then later went back and sequenced maybe the 16S gene in E. coli and in Shigella, we found that there were E. coli strains. So these are all different strain numbers of E. coli. Um, there are E. coli strains that were more different than each other than some of the Shigella strains were to the E. coli strains. So this group of Shigella and this group of E. coli share a common ancestor relatively recently, and this group of E. coli and this group of E. coli share a common ancestor here. So that tells us that, you know, actually they're just as different from each other as they are to these Shigella, and that these Shigella and these E. coli are more similar to each other. And so it's, I think it's completely wacky that, you know, they, early microbiologists looked at the phenotypes of these different bacteria and said, oh, Shigella is really different. Shigella uh, tends to cause disease, and therefore Shigella, it must be a very different bacteria. Um, but actually, Shigella is very similar to E. coli. It just has a couple genes that causes it to be pathogenic and causes it to behave very differently. And so... We, we thought that they were very distinct, but actually Shigella are just a different kind of E. coli you could think of. Um, and so, you know, understanding what is a monophyletic group and being able to read these phylogenies was important to understanding sort of what, what is Shigella? Oh, it's, it's really just an E. coli that has a couple key pathogenicity genes. And so then we can then focus in on understanding why did, where did it get those pathogenicity genes? Why did they evolve? Um, how do we interfere with those genes? Because most E. coli are actually fine. They exist in our gut, uh, but certainly we don't want Shigella. Um, that's a very deadly bacteria. 
Uh, and so this is just text uh, that explains uh, what I just said. Okay, now I wanna sort of pose, once we establish these monophyletic groups, and if we know the different monophyletic groups have different properties, like some are pathogenic and some are not pathogenic, then we can look at this phylogeny and establish when these pathogenic characteristics evolved. And so this is that question. Where in this phylogeny did pathogenicity evolve? Okay, it evolved at B. And so the way that you read these phylogenies is that along these branches, this is where mutations are occurring, and this is where new phenotypes are occurring. This is where evolution is actually happening. These node points um, describe the relationship between different groups of taxa, but the evolution doesn't actually happen here. It happens along these branches. And the way that you can see that pathogenicity evolved along this branch B and not E or A or D or so forth, um, is that this group here, this monophyletic group, is distinct phenotypically from this group here. And so you wanna say, when did that phenotype evolve? Oh, well the simplest explanation is that it evolved once along this branch here. You could have a more complicated explanation like, it evolved here, and then it, but it also had to flip over here. But the simplest explanation is that it evolved at B. So one of the reasons that we think that it evolved out here uh, is that you know the majority of the the majority of the strains um, are not are not pathogenic, and so it seems that it suggests that the ancestral state should be non-pathogenic, and that it evolved this derived trait, um, and therefore it had to evolve somewhere out here, and it must have evolved um, at B. Uh, if it evolved at E, it wouldn't explain why this one was also pathogenic. One thing that I wanna point out is that we often um, build a phylogeny based on a gene like 16S, but 16S is not the gene that encodes for pathogenicity. And so we build the phylogeny, we establish the evolutionary relationships, then we look at the taxa and we um, put onto the phylogeny, we overlay these uh, characteristics like these two are pathogenic and these, these uh, strains are not pathogenic. And then we can look at the phylogeny and establish when these traits likely evolved in their evolutionary history. And so oftentimes I will ask some, a question like, oh, when did antibiotic resistance evolve? Or when did a virus shift between different host species? And I will give students sequences. These sequences are not of the actual genes that cause the host range shift or cause the antibiotic resistance. These sequences are just these you know, 16S-like sequences that um, you establish the evolutionary relationships with, um, they're not actually the mutations that cause the phenotypic change. Often, when we're doing these analyses, we, we might not know what gene confers antibiotic resistance or what gene causes a virus to be able to shift hosts. But we can establish their evolutionary relationships 
and then figure out where in the phylogeny did this shift happen, did this evolutionary change happen, and then that helps us actually point to candidates of you know what genes have mutations in them along that branch, and then we can hone in on those those mutations and try to experimentally figure out you know which ones are the the ones that actually cause the change in the phenotype. So often the first step to figuring out the genetic basis of something is to establish this phylogeny and then go back and figure out you know what changes happened here and that these are now our hypotheses for what changes cause the shift in pathogenicity. And so it's important for you to understand that you can establish an evolutionary pattern based on you know a, a single gene and then use that to make inferences about when certain traits evolved, even though the mutations in that gene are not responsible for those traits. Okay, uh, so just some more jargon uh, that maybe I should have uh, given you up front. Uh, but these are called OTUs, Operational Taxonomic Units. Um, people often will refer to phylogenies as establishing evolutionary relationships between species, um, but you can also establish evolutionary relationships between genotypes of a single species. And so that's why we just use this more vague term of operational taxonomic unit. Um, this just means that you know, these, are the, these are the different strains that we sequenced. They are taxonomic units, as in they are different strains. Um, the reason why you don't just call them strains is because, like we saw in that earlier phylogeny of, of E. coli, there were different species embedded right next to different genotypes of the same species. And so sometimes you're comparing different species, sometimes you're comparing different strains, sometimes you're comparing different species of different and different strains simultaneously. And so we just use this jargon that's a little bit vague, but it's called operational taxonomic unit, also known as an OTU. Okay, so now I want to get back to just um, building phylogenies and how you translate these DNA sequences into these structures. Um, and for this example here, I am going to remove C as, as the L group. It's no longer the L group. It can, it can be moved into different positions in this tree. And this is just a simplification that I'm doing for, for the, the course here. And so right now, I know that a and B are distinct from C, and so this could be the, uh, the evolutionary relationship, um, but it could also be arranged in, in different ways. Um, and so really, we wanna be able to add in additional information to resolve what this uh, phylogenetic tree really looks like. And so uh, we, add in, we add in a little bit more DNA sequence, and we see now that there's a second polymorphic site and that the second site now has um, species B being distinct from species A, um, and that species A is now actually more similar to species C just at, at this site, or, or just as similar to species C as it is to species B. And so when we start adding in this additional information, we're left with this conundrum that actually there are now two ways that we could build this tree that are equally parsimonious, uh, and it's not clear to me sort of what arrangement you would actually want this tree to be in. 
So, okay, let's just sort of walk through these sequences and these phylogenies, and I'll, and I'll tell you how this is all working. So right now, we're saying that this common ancestor has an A in the first position and a T in the second position that's polymorphic. So A and T, right? And so the evolution out here does not entail any changes in this, in this sequence of the, the DNA. And then as we get additional evolution, we uh, get a change in that first site to a T. And so that means that all of the descendants from here, this A has a T there, and this descendant to B has a T as well. And so as we're moving along the evolution, no other changes are happening all the way out to A in this sequence of DNA. But when we then branch off to B, we now see that there's, a, there's another change. Uh, that T at the second site that's polymorphic uh, has now changed to a C. But we could e equally explain this by TC being this ancestor and no change happening out here. One change happening here, that C is changing to a T, and that leads out to the A. And then off of this branch here, just like over here, but now leading to C, um, we have a flip of that first site to an A. So now we have two equally parsimonious uh, phylogenies. And so we can't make a decision between these two different phylogenies. And so we want to add in more sequence information to see if it will resolve whether or not this is the more likely phylogeny or this is the more likely phylogeny. So before we do that, I want to test whether or not you got the concept of these common ancestors and what the sequences, the DNA sequences are at the, at the positions in the tree for these different common ancestors. And so let's just focus on that X, that common ancestor of A and C in, in this scenario here. And so the common ancestor there is TT. And the way that you can see that is that, you know, the common ancestor here is TC, like we've established. Um, and then as we, as it evolves out, it gets a, it gets a change, just a single change. Um, that second site changes from a C to a T. And so that gives us this genotype here, TT. And then no other mutations are happening along this branch in this, in this small segment of DNA. And so this common ancestor is TT. It goes out, it gives, you, gives rise to A, which has no additional mutations in this sequence, but it then gives rise to C, which has this one additional mutation uh, that first T site changes to an A. So TT is the common ancestor. It's our hypothesis of the genetic state of that population that then gave rise to A and C. So we need more information um, in order to be able to resolve whether it's um, phylogeny A or phylogeny B. So whether it's this phylogeny or that phylogeny. And so we just, we're sequencing the gene, we're sequencing more DNA, and then we uncover a third polymorphic site. And so when we then begin to add this extra information to the phylogeny, we see that, you know, given this common ancestor here, we get three mutations to explain all of this. So 
what we've added in is just this, um, this one mutation here of the G. So the G separates out A and B from C, and so it can happen early before the branching point happens here in the phylogeny. And then this one change in mutation explains um, the, the difference between these two compared to C. And so we just have to add, we added in one more polymorphism and we added in one more mutation. Well, on this phylogeny here, in order to explain um, adding in this additional information, if this is the common ancestor TCC, then um, you have to add in a G along this branch out to B, and then you have to add in a separate G on this branch out to A, because you know this C has this has this old state, so it doesn't have a change at this position, and so because this species C is grouped with A, and A is separate from B, then you have to establish that there's two separate mutations that are occurring, a C to G on this branch out to here, and C to G on this branch out to, out to there. And so that is not parsimonious, um, and so you would prefer this hypothesis over this other hypothesis. And so this is just uh, language that is explaining uh, what I just explained. So when you see this kind of pattern of phylogeny, this is what we call parallel evolution, where you have the same exact mutation happening in two separate spots in the, in the phylogeny. And so what I mean is that it's the same site in the sequence, and it's changing to the exact same base. Parallel evolution is highly unlikely to happen. We know that mutation rates are really low, um, and to get the exact same mutation twice spontaneously um, is very unlikely. So that's not to say that it never happens. Sometimes you do get parallel evolution, and often the scenario in which you get parallel evolution is when you have strong natural selection favoring a particular mutation. So for instance, say this C to G change conferred antibiotic resistance. Well, antibiotic resistance gives bacteria a huge benefit. And so even if that is rare for that mutation to pop up in a bacterial population, this thing is going to be highly selected, and so it's going to be fished out of the population. And so if you are a bacteria living in patient A, and you're a bacteria living in, in or we'll say your, your bacterial species living in patient B, and your bacterial species living in patient A, um, and your bacterial species living in, in patient C, A and B are given tetracycline, and this mutation gives you resistance to tetracycline, then even though you're not most closely related to each other, you're likely to share the same mutation um, because you've been exposed to uh, the similar, a similar kind of evolutionary pressure that has helped facilitate the rise of that mutation and has um, contributed to your, to your evolution. And so there are rare cases where you might see parallel evolution, but if we can build a phylogeny where we don't have this parallel evolution, where we have fewer evolutionary changes to establish the, the relationship between these species, then we choose the simpler phylogeny. There's a term for when you have parallel evolution in phylogenies when you have a single base changing multiple different times within the phylogeny, 
And that is called homoplasy. Uh, so homoplasy is a, a character shared by a set of species, but not present in their common ancestor. So homoplasy relates this concept of paraphyly, right? So this ancestor here, we have two different states out here. That state is not shared um, with this species here. The ancestor doesn't have it either. Um, and so this is a case where, yes, it's, it's common to both of these things, but it evolved independently and it's not in the ancestor. And so that's kind of like creating this paraphyletic group at the, at sort of the, the mutation level. Um, and we call that homoplasy. And homoplasy actually is this, this signal that interferes with our ability to reconstruct evolutionary relationships. And in employing parsimony, we minimize the amount of homoplasy that occurs in phylogenetic trees. So this has homoplasy, this does not have homoplasy. We choose this tree here. So homoplasy can arise from par parallel evolution, um, where the same mutation occurs independently twice on a tree, but it can also occur from reversions, where a mutation evolves at, at, at an early point in the tree, and then later on in evolution, it gets reversed. Um, and so that can actually begin to interfere with your ability to interpret what's going on in the phylogenetic tree. So let's, let's go over an example of a reversion. And to do this, we're going to simplify this phylogenetic tree here uh, back to this, this state. And so say this um, A, so this A evolves to a T, but say that it reverses in species A so that uh, it, it re is restored uh, back to this A, A position here. So that's just what I'm saying here, that, that here is a, so let's start over. We have this ancestral state, A and a T. We have the evolution from A to a T here. And then further out in the phylogeny, we have a reversion of that T back to an A. So B still has this derived state of the T here, and A has an additional mutation so it's even more derived, but that derived state looks like looks like the the old version of the phylog, or the old version of the the sequence, and so that begins to uh, mess up the way that we can establish uh, relationships. And so, actually, if you were just looking at these sequences where this reversion happened, you would say, "Oh, well, no, A and C are are." Um, actually identical with each other, and B is the one that's distinct. B has two mutations. So maybe we knew that, you know, we, we wouldn't really be able to know, but maybe this was the true history of the organism, of the, of the evolution of these species. Um, but when we construct the phylogeny, we would actually yield this evolutionary relationship. And so reversions and parallel evolution can really interfere with our abilities our ability to resolve the true evolutionary relationships. So we always want to choose genes and choose information to put into our phylogeny where we don't have many of these homoplasies. We want to minimize that. We don't want reversions. We don't want parallel evolution. 
so that we can really reveal the true tree. Okay, so bottom line, we use parsimony because it's logical, but parallel evolution and reversions can create, can happen, um, and so they do create problems uh, with using parsimony. Our goal is always to reduce homoplasy when establishing a phylogenetic tree. Okay, so here's a question. Which SNP, which mutation on this phylogenetic tree um, is an instance of homoplasy? And so that is uh, position number 10. And the way that you can see it is that in order, so this is, these are sequences that we constructed this phylogeny with, and the most parsimonious phylogeny has mutation C to A of no, at position 10 occurring twice in the phylogeny. That there is no way to build a, a more parsimonious phylogenetic tree. And so this indicates that actually this C to an A evolved emission in position 10 uh, two independent times in the phylogeny. This is a case of parallel evolution. So we try to minimize homoplasy, but sometimes there's no way around it. Parallel evolution happens, and this is a case of where it did happen. So let's, let me show you how to actually build a phylogeny from scratch from these DNA sequences. And so uh, the first thing is we root the tree. And so we know that that salmonella is actually an outgroup to all of these E. coli strains. Uh, sal salmonella, unlike Shigella, is actually a distinct uh, genus of, of uh, bacteria, distinct from Escherichiae, which is E. coli. And now what we do, once we have this, this structure established in the tree, is we have to figure out how are these guys related to each other? Um, and how, so how do, they, how do they form groups onto this part of the phylogenetic tree? And the first step that I, I always take, now there's lots of ways to go about this, um, and you can choose your own way, uh, but the way that I break it down is I say, what, what strains are most similar to each other? So I'm just looking at this sequence of DNA and comparing it to this sequence of DNA, this sequence to this sequence and this sequence out to this sequence down here. So that's what these brackets are saying. And it's saying that, okay, there are two genetic differences between E. coli B and O157. So this is one genetic difference and this is the second genetic difference. These sites here are, are not different. So I've just underscored the sites in the DNA sequence that vary among the different strains and species that we're looking at. Um, so there's three genetic differences between O157 and K12, and there is actually only one genetic difference between E. coli B and E. coli K12. So this gives us a hint. It tells us which strains are most similar, and so it also gives us a hint for which strains are likely to group together on a phylogenetic tree. And so our preliminary hypothesis is that B and K12 uh, will group together in the phyla phylogenetic tree 
And that 0157 is going to uh, share a much older common ancestor with B and K12. They share a much more recent common ancestor. Now what we want to do is we want to go through all of these sequences and we want to begin to add on mutations into this phylogeny and to just see if there's any homoplasy that we've accidentally built into the phylogeny. And then if there is homoplasy, then we have to sort of fix that or explore alternative explanations. We, we see here um, that, you know, this is, this is the, uh, the first mutation that we looked at. The mutation that basically gave us the structure in the first place is uh, that E. coli B and K12 share a C here, but the ancestor has a G and also the O157 has a G. And so it suggests that there's no mutation at the site early, um, but there is a mutation at the site that happens between the common ancestor of O157 in K12 and B and the common ancestor of K12 in B. Um, and so it happened on this branch here. Then we can sort of walk through the tree and see if we can, when we add in these mutations, do they make sense? And so we see that the only, the only strain that varies at this site is K12, and so we can put our mutation on the tree right there for K12. We see here that the only, site that var the only, um, the only strain that varies at this site is O157, so that's a T. And so we can say there's a C to a T change that happens somewhere on this branch here. And then our last mutation says that, okay, all of these three strains have the same base in this ancestor or this ancestral state. Uh, the outgroup has a T there. And so we say, okay, this has a T, and therefore there must be a change in this early part of the phylogenetic tree for a T to go to an A, and so all of the descendants actually have an A there. And so when you walk through, you actually see that there's no homoplasy, that all of these mutations agreed with your early prediction uh, for the structure of the phylogenetic tree. That doesn't always work out. Sometimes you make, you make a hypothesis, and then you go back, and you look at the, the mutations, and you begin to see that there's lots of homoplasy, and when that happens, then you have to um, reorder your OTUs and restructure your tree um, to minimize the number of uh, instances of parallel evolution or reversions. And so, um, when you're doing these kinds of these kinds of problems, um, they're going to become more advanced than this one here. Uh, but you can think of them as kind of a Rubik's cube. That as you begin to sort of move your your different uh, OTUs around in the tree, you end up, you, you move one side and it ends up having cascading effects on all of the patterns on the other sides of the Rubik's Cube. And so, um, you know, you have to be careful in the way that you change these things that this is sort of a multi-dimensional problem like Rubik's Cube with all of this interdependence and the, the puzzles can actually be, uh, be pretty challenging. Um, but you'll see in, in your practice that you can actually solve these, these phylogenies uh, pretty easily. Okay, so let's just construct another phylogeny. And obviously this one's going to be a little bit more complicated and show us, you know, how, how uh, homoplasy can, can work. So we want to build the backbone, just like we did before. 
we want to we want to um, look at genetic differences between these um, these taxa OTUs, and what we see is that B and K twelve are are now grouping together just like they did before. And so we want to ask ourselves: Are there are there any mutations that only B and K twelve share? Um, and so we see again that this this fourth position shares these mutations. And so then we 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 feel confident um, to to establish that this is our hypothesis for evolutionary relationships. So basically, you know, the clustering these distance scores between the sequences gave us the shape and this mutation here, this number four mutation, you know, gave us additional support that yes, there is a mutation that occurred here that now uh, makes these two guys cluster together and cluster away from the rest of the phylogenetic tree. Okay, so that makes sense and that, that seems all good. So let's walk through the rest of the SNPs to see if they all agree with this phylogeny. And so again, we go to SNP number one and we see that there's just a single change uh, out to K12. And so this is a T to an A just out on this branch here. Then we go to number two and we're still doing good. We have a change uh, from a, a C to a T uh, in 0157. But then when we get to number three, we actually see that in order to explain this, given the structure of the phylogeny, we have to have parallel evolution. We have to have one change happening out in K12 and one change happening out on 0157. And so then that makes us question our structure. And so we can begin to explore other structures of this phylogeny. And so what, what we explore is that, well, you know, the, the site number three, so the site number three tells us that actually maybe K12 and 0157 cluster together and that, um, that B is more divergent from those two strains. See, what I'm saying is that site number three has an A here and an A here for K12, but in B has a distinct T here that's more like that salmonella. And so we can change the phylogeny to reflect our new hypothesis that K12 and 0157 are um, more closely related to each other. But when we do that, now we mess up the, the fourth mutation. And so now we have to have parallel, in order to explain this phylogeny, we have to have parallel evolution that's happening out to K12 and out to B because this fourth site is, more, is the same in both of these strains. And so then we're left with this basically two phylogenies um, where we have this, this disagreement um, between you know, their, their overall structures. And we have to sort of figure out, you know, what's a way to resolve this, this issue. And maybe this is a scenario where we can't just sequence more DNA. And so when we look at them side by side, they have the same number of mutations with, with each other. So they, they're equally parsimonious. There is homoplasy in both of the phylogenies, but there's no way around it. And so when this happens, and this does happen a lot in, in phylogenies, then, and you're unable to get collect more information, um, what you do 
is you indicate when you when you go to publish your evolutionary relationships, you indicate to the readers of your journal and the readers of the phylogeny that there's some uncertainty in the phylogeny. And so you put these numbers on the phylogeny, which are confidence scores. And so because there's, there's two, different, um, two different phylogenies that are equally parsimonious, and I can't decide between the two of them, I say that, yes, we are 100% confident that, you know, this is, that Salmonella is related to these three um, taxa in this way. Um, but I'm only 50% confident that there is, that this is a distant relative to B and K12. And I'm only 50% confident that these are the most closely related ones because there's, a, there's another likely orientation where, K, where um, K12 and O157 are more closely related to each other. And so you don't, you know, you don't throw away your phylogenetic analysis, you don't throw away your data if you can't resolve the tree. What you do is you just publish it with these confidence scores on the phylogeny. So when you're reading phylogenies, you will often see these tiny little numbers all throughout the phylogeny. What does this mean? Those little numbers are telling you how much evidence there is in the data for these phylogenetic relationships. And so let's just, and this is a phylogeny actually for swine flu. Um, you know, this was a, swine flu was a, caused a pandemic. In recent times, it, it caused another pandemic not nearly as bad as obviously as, as COVID-19 because it just wasn't as deadly. But we were interested in tracking the spread of swine flu um, and why these confidence, indicating these confidence um, values is important is so that people don't overinterpret the data. And so I just want to zoom into this one small section of the phylogeny. And in this phylogeny, it shows that there, there are two strains of Italian bird flu, and then there's a strain of New Jersey bird flu. And what this or structure in the phylogeny would tell you is that there is an ancestral strain of bird flu that was in Italy, and that it was in back here, and that at some point out here, when it was evolving and spreading, it then got transferred to New Jersey. And so it'd say, okay, the epidemic that's happening in New Jersey was caused by somebody traveling from Italy to New Jersey. And so that would be, you know, that would be bad. That's Europe spreading um, disease to North America. However, this evolutionary relationship is very, very weak. We only have a 16% confidence and a 14% confidence. And so you can imagine that easily it's the exact reverse relationship where New Jersey is the ancestor to these two more derived Italian strains. Um, and so where New Jersey would be here and Italy and Italy here, and then your interpretation of the direction of the disease would be exactly opposite that New Jersey, North America gave it to Italy. And so, you know, you want to make sure that you look at these scores because if you're going to make, you know, some kind of conclusion like that, that has such medical implications, you want to know that that's on solid footing, right? You don't want to base it on a 16% confidence and a 14% confidence. Okay, so we're down to the last two slides. Let's, let's sort of review all this phylogeny stuff. Okay. So 
one thing that students get tripped up on, and I always do a poor job at explaining, is that phylogenies can be represented in lots of different ways. When you're reading through papers, sometimes phylogenies are a spiral, like the tree of life, and like a, a, more of a spiral like the, um, the evolutionary relationship of vertebrates that we went over. Um, sometimes they are like the cartoons that I talked about, where they're, they're pointed up. Sometimes they're like the E. coli phylogenies where they're pointed to the side. Those are all the same. Sometimes they have V shapes. Sometimes they have just box shapes. Those are all the same. They're showing you evolutionary branches and those are connected by these nodes, which are establishing these branch points, these evolutionary relationships. And so just sort of familiarize yourself with what these phylogenies look like and what the similar features are and how they actually do convey the exact same information. And so how do you pick one design over another? That's just the preference of, um, of the author of the phylogenies. And sometimes you may disagree with why, you know, why they picked one type over the other, but just know that no matter the, the way that they're being published or the way the diagram looks, they're conveying the same information. Uh, also remember that the ordering of the OTUs um, often doesn't have a meaning. Um, you know, you can just spin those OTUs around on their on those nodes and get different what look like different phylogenies, but actually they're the exact same. They're conveying the exact same information. Phylogenetic algorithms minimize homoplasy to make the most parsimonious tree, and but in doing that, there are cases where um, homoplasy does happen, parallel evolution does happen, and that can really distort our ability to um, interpret phylogenetic relationships. There are many ways to construct phylogenetic trees. We've gone over parsimony today, but actually a lot of the trees are um, constructed with even more sophisticated algorithms uh, like maximum likelihood uh, and other things that you might hear about in the literature. Don't worry about it. Um, parsimony is sort of the base of how we, we think about uh, phylogenetics and how we reconstruct trees. Um, and we won't make things even more complicated. And this Goldilocks principle, let's forget about it. Uh, it's been a long lecture anyways. One last thing, um, there is a nice little video about uh, summarizing phylogenetics uh, from the Howard uh, Hughes Medical Institute, HHMI. They have a lot of um, teaching materials on their website that are really very high quality and very good. Um, so if you need some extra um, explanations on phylogenetics and how all this stuff works, uh, feel free to go to that website and, and look at that video. It might help accompany this lecture. Thank you guys as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I will see you on Thursday. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.